This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Tessa Fontaine discusses The Electric Woman, a memoir in death-defying acts. Then, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot provides a book expo preview. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD Bookscan. Uh, we've got a couple of new books over here on the fiction side. Nothing too exciting this week. At number one, we have The Seventeenth Suspect by James Patterson. Uh, this was uh, technically on our list at number 22 last week, but this was the real first week out there. And of course, it's at number one, as Patterson almost always is. Uh, sold uh, almost 40,000 copies in hardcover, according wow. to NPD Bookscan. Right. And uh, this is the 17th book in the Women's Murder Club series. And in this one, a killer who chooses victims personally is stalking San Francisco and getting very close to Detective Lindsay Boxer. We don't have a review of this title, but uh, it's clearly one that uh, series fans will appreciate. Uh, moving down the list just a little bit, at number four, The Forgotten Road by Richard Paul Evans. Uh, this is his second novel in a planned trilogy about a man who's on an inspirational pilgrimage across Route 66. And uh, again, this is not a book we have a review of, but uh, definitely one for, for people who are into this particular strain of kind of inspirational, emotional, self-searching fiction. Um, I, I feel like books like these are, are the lesser known counterpart to the, the women's fiction stories about women kind of finding themselves mm. and their, their own stories and figuring themselves out, figuring right. out their lives. And so this is a similar kind of soul searching tale. Uh, just a little bit below that at number five, Adjustment Day by Chuck Palahniuk. And uh, we say that in our review that the defiance of social order, well known from Palahniuk's Fight Club, finds new if stunted life. Uh, as American society continues to fail the common man, a mysterious actor, Talbot Reynolds, appears on radio and TV promising a new system built truly by the people. And soon a black book starts spreading that speaks of an adjustment day that will bring power to the powerless. And uh, we said the over-the-top premise is classic Polanek, but he, just, he stumbles in its delivery, focusing more on the farcical aspects of the story than on the characters living in it. Uh, but nonetheless, his name is certainly enough to sell right. plenty yep. of yeah. books. Uh, down below that, number 13, Robert B. Parker's Old Black Magic, a Spencer novel uh, written by Ace Atkins, continuing the series by the late Robert B. Parker. Uh, we say that the 1990 Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist, one of the art world's greatest unsolved mysteries, provides the spark for this entertaining story. And that, as usual, Atkins emulates Parker's style and dry humor flawlessly. Uh, but this straightforward plot-driven entry lacks the attention to the developing relationship between series protagonist Spencer and his partner Susan uh, that marked the previous book. 
just below that, I want to give a nod to this Less by Andrew Sean Greer. If that sounds familiar, it came out in 2017. Uh, it's back on the list because it won a Pulitzer. Right. So uh, we gave it a starred review, called it a, a wistful novel. And uh, in fact, uh, less, it's about an author, a middle-aged writer who's not known primarily for his own work, but for his lengthy romantic association with a Pulitzer Prize winning author. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we say that the authorial slides of hand that uh, make the narrator fade into the background only to have an identity revealed at the end is a wonderful surprise. So <laughs> uh, they did, it's a little bit of poetic justice there. Yeah, right. And uh, finally, at number 17, Love and Ruin by Paula McLean, uh, author of The Paris Wife. And uh, we say that in this book, she strikingly depicts Martha Gellhorn's burgeoning career as a writer and war correspondent during the years of her affair with and marriage to Ernest Hemingway. And uh, we say that uh, uh, realizing her true passion comes from on-the-ground reporting, Gellhorn decides to cover D-Day by leaving Hemingway and stowing away on the first hospital ship to land at Normandy, waiting ashore to become the first journalist, male or female, to make it there and report back. Wow. And so she emerges as a fierce trailblazer, every bit Hemingway's equal in this thrilling book. Great. Fantastic. So over to nonfiction, I think for the third week in a row, our uh, highest debut has been a cookbook. Uh, this one is Margaritaville by Carl Cernalia and Julia Tertian. And this is a book that will make all those parrot heads happy. Yes, this is uh, based on Jimmy Buffett's uh, restaurants. There are several of them. And uh, we say that these uh, recipes are festive and easy to prepare, perfect for entertaining. And these are mashups of global tropical cuisines with Gulf Coast Floribian roots. Jimmy Buffett fans will undoubtedly uh, enjoy this cookbook. And even non-parrot heads will find lots of solid go-to recipes here. Lots of seafood uh, as you can imagine. And so, margaritas. And sure. margaritas, yes, yes. I'm sure there's a few of them. Number 12, Through My Father's Eyes, Franklin Graham. This is from the son of Billy Graham. Uh, we don't have a review of this, but this is uh, a, a memoir slash biography. Uh, and then at number 15, we have The Assault on Intelligence, American National Security in an Age of Lies by Michael uh, Hayden. Uh, this is a critique of the forces uh, threatening the American intelligence community, uh, beginning with the President of the United States himself and a time when that community's work has never been harder or more important says the jacket copy. So we don't have a review of that. But we do have one uh, at number 19, Don't Stop Believing, The Man, The Band, and The Song That Inspired Generations by Jonathan Kane. Kane is the uh, keyboardist and songwriter for Journey, uh, who wrote the song, uh, Don't Stop Believing. Uh, and here uh, he gives readers a backstage pass to his musical, personal, and spiritual lives. Uh, he begins with his childhood in Chicago and for his music, which became a source of solace after he survived a fire at his elementary school. We say rock fans and Christian readers looking for a heartening story of uh, perseverance through tragedy will find much to enjoy in Kane's candid memoir. And that's what we've got. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Tessa Fontaine tells us how she ran away and joined the circus. We'll be right back. My name is Lauren Hilgers. I'm the author of Patriot Number 1, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. 
I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Tessa Fontaine on the line. Her new book is The Electric Woman, a memoir in death-defying acts. Tessa, I'm so glad you could join us. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on today. So uh, you spent the 2013 season performing with a circus sideshow called World of Wonders. Tell us about this circus and how you ended up with them. Yeah, so uh, I ended up with this um, sideshow because uh, I, I sort of had a long, a long-running interest in sideshows, and I learned that there was one town in Florida outside Tampa um, where a lot of sideshow performers would go to retire um, or to go in the off season uh, in the winter. And I was living in Alabama at the time, and so I started. Um, I just drove down there and, and kind of started poking around and, and following people and asking questions and trying to learn. Um, you know, it sort of sounded too amazing to be true um, that there was this town that had changed the legislation actually to allow for elephants and tigers in people's front yards, and, and you know, it was kind of just like this micro circus chasm. Uh, chasm. And I went down there. Um, and I think that I kind of annoyed the performer and the bosses enough into <laughs> into offering me a space in the show. But um, I just was I just couldn't kind of stop asking questions and couldn't learn enough about what it was actually like to be a performer on the road. And so eventually um, the boss just said, like, look, if you really want to understand what this world is like, why don't you just come play with us for a season? Um, and I said, yes. Uh, and so I found myself a few months later, um, yeah, joining uh, America's last traveling sideshow, The World of Wonders. Um, and I really had no skills whatsoever. Um, and I, I maybe bluffed a little bit that I, that I could do some, <laughs> some things that I couldn't. Um, but that was how my journey began. So uh, I, I should say I'm from uh, uh, St. Petersburg, so I know this. Oh, yeah. This I've I've heard of it. I've known. Uh, I've had friends who have actually gone there to study. I grew up going to the Ringling uh, Circus down in Sarasota. Um, so can you just describe this place for us? Yeah, uh, this world absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, so the town is called Gibsonton, um, called Gibtown to locals, and uh, it, it was first kind of started because exactly because it's close to it's on the way down to Ringling's winter headquarters which is in Sarasota and there were a number of um, sideshow performers which is kind of synonymous with freak show performers who as they were going down one winter passed through this kind of just really small sleepy town and and thought like actually maybe we should live somewhere that's not in the heart of where all the other circus performers live. Maybe we want to be somewhere where we're not kind of so gawked at all the time in the off season where we can build our own community. And so that was kind of the origin of it being a sideshow town. Um, And uh, allegedly it has the only postal counter designed specifically for little people. Um, There are stories about conjoined twins that once ran a lemonade stand on the side of the highway. And you really, when you pass through, it looks, pretty unremarkable it looks just like another kind of small town um anywhere that you would drive through in florida but um if you stop off there's like one there's a place called the show i think it's called the showman's bar and grill and there are you know all of these peeling portraits painted everywhere inside of acrobats and lion tamers and um and at one point the town was absolutely full of of sideshow performers and carnival workers and as the sideshow has kind of slowly died away um a lot fewer people have 
have made that place their home. And, and now it, it, there aren't that many people that are living there. There, there are a lot of um, carnies in general, so people who work with the carnival during the carnival season live there. So you do see a lot of semis parked in people's yards with, um, you know, Ferris wheels folded in on them and, and various rides. But when I first went there to meet the boss, I said, like, oh, what, what part of town do the performers live in? And he was like, well, if you follow me down the block, I'll walk you to the cemetery. That's where they live now. So <laughs> it's, wow. a, it, it's a kind of an amazing place that holds so much history and still is important in the sideshow world, but um, is a very different version of, you know, kind of the spectacular carnival town than, than it was 50 years ago and 100 years ago. So you had this sort of flight of fancy. I mean, I, I, running away to join the circus is almost a cliche, but really what made you do it? What What was this impulse, this impetus that you kept following? Yeah, so I think, I mean, to be honest, like for, for the first while that I was out on the road with him, I wasn't really sure why I was there. I, I had this, exactly as you said, I had this um, impulse to be there, this impulse to join it. And it took me a little while to kind of figure out um, that the real reason that I had kind of decided to do this kind of insanely reckless thing that I knew nothing about um, actually had to do with my mom. Um, two and a half years before I joined the sideshow, my mom suffered a series of uh, massive hemorrhagic strokes that were completely debilitating and left her unable to communicate in any way, left her paralyzed on one side. And for a full year, she was um, in kind of intensive care in the hospital. And she was just constantly, uh, it looked like we were losing her pretty much every day. It was really a, mm. a traumatic time. Um, and uh, once she got kind of medically stable, um, you know, the, the kind of normal thing to do would have been to sort of keep her comfortable and safe um, at home when she was out of the hospital. But instead of doing that, um, my stepdad decided that and, and, and with my mom, you know, kind of as much as she could communicate and agree, um, decided that they were going to take this long delayed trip to Italy that they had always dreamed of taking they'd always wanted to go and, and they had never been able to and um so they sort of said like uh we're not gonna kind of actually the way that my stepdad phrased it was like we didn't want to sit around you know kind of smelling like pee and getting ready to die we wanted to go do something just big and bold and and i think it didn't matter to them so much whether they came back or not hmm. Yeah, so they decided to go and, and take this trip, and it was really scary for my brother and I and the rest of our family, and, and really, um, I mean, we didn't, we didn't really know what to do. We tried to sort of protest in the beginning, and then, um, and then after a while, it sort of, it kind of became this question of, of like, you know, are, are we really going to protest against them going and doing this big, bold, beautiful, terrifying um, kind of last hurrah. And so, so all of this was happening, um, as I was starting to learn about the sideshow and, and then they made the decision to go, to go on this trip and I got offered the spot on the sideshow. Um, and it felt like my, my mom had been this before she had her strokes and also, uh, you know, now with, with deciding to take this trip, she had been this really bold, uh, unique, person who lived her life in a really big way. Um, and, and I had been a really kind of shy, fearful kid. And so it kind of felt like 
a way of trying to like match her braveness or trying to imagine what she would have done, you know, had she been invited to join a sideshow. Um, so, so as much as it was about, you know, the sideshow itself and how exciting and alluring that world was, it, it also for me was very much a matter of um, trying to do something that she would have done or that I think she would have been delighted by. So tell us about the first act that you learned and how you learned it. How did you go about doing these things? Yeah. So, um, so when the, so, so I got the invitation to join the show and, um, I got kind of passed on at that point from the big boss who owned the sideshow, but didn't go on the road anymore. I got passed along to the road boss and he emailed me and said, like, I hear, I hear you're going to be our new performer. Uh, what can you do? What are your acts? And at that point, I kind of panicked. And I was like, <laughs> oh, boy, I better tell them I can do something uh, or, you know, or there's going to be no reason for them to, to keep me. And so I just Googled, like, what are the acts in a sideshow? And I just wrote a list of things that I saw on there, like fire eating and uh, poisoning and magic and snake charming. Um, and he said, like, great, see you in a couple of months. And so uh, I decided that I should learn one, at least one of the acts before I went out there. So, so I wasn't completely lying. So I was just mostly lying, but not completely lying. Um, and so I decided to learn how to eat fire. Um, and I'm from uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. And, uh, and there are fire eating classes here. Um, and I think we can like thank Burning Man and, and things like that for for that um and so i found a fire eating class and i uh spent two days um learning how to light my arms on fire and how to put out you know uh, we started out kind of the teacher lit her legs on fire she shook out a bunch of uh gas white gas under her pants and lit her pants on fire and it was our job to smother it out. Um, and then we <laughs> wow. started uh, lighting our fingers on fire and arms. And, um, and within an hour we were progressing to putting the fire in our mouth. So it went quicker than I anticipated that it mm -hmm. would. Uh, yes. Um, uh, I, but, I've, I've uh, been to, uh, I've been to similar demonstrations. I know a lot of people who do circus arts and fire spinning and things like oh, that. So, um, yeah, I, I was in San Francisco too, for a few years. And also I hang out a lot with the, the that crowd in Boston. So this is all sounding awesome. like delightfully familiar. You meet the best people through these, <laughs> yeah. through these things. Did you make friends in your classes? I did. You know, there was actually only one other person in my class. Uh, it, was, it was for some reason. Yeah. So he was really uh, he, and he was he was this really short, very hairy guy, um, which is, a, I think, a tough, you know, being very hairy is a tough starting point for, for fire eating. Because yeah. You're lighting your arms and you, all of your hairs are just, you know, coiling and blackening and, and coiling. But um, yeah, he was really interesting. And he said the reason he was learning is because he was a stilt walker. At Burning Man, he felt like there was like just too many still walkers, and he didn't have an identity that felt you know <laughs> unique enough anymore. So he he wanted to one up his still walking oh, for beautiful. performance, which I thought was pretty fantastic. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean that community of people is great. It, they're so interesting, and and it is really fun being around people who are like you know how can we how can we make something really beautiful out of something that's also quite frightening, which I think is actually a lot of what the sideshow sort of is about too. 
And tell us about your title, Electric Woman. Was that another one of your acts, or is that a reference to something else? The Electric Woman is um, is both one of the acts and kind of a reference to something else. But um, it's the act I learned last, um, and it's an act where you come on stage and you sit down in an electric chair and you light light bulbs off of your arms and your legs and uh, inside of your mouth. Uh, and so you're using your body as a conduit for the electricity. Um, and the act is also done with someone else on stage with a talker, which is sort of, we usually call it, uh, or outsiders call it a barker, but the actual insider term is a talker. Um, and he will kind of explain the act as it's going on. And then also when he touches the light bulb, like the light bulb that I have in my mouth, for example, when he touches it, it the light bulb gets even brighter because it completes the circuit of the electricity. Um and it was my favorite act to perform, one, because it was, it was this one that I always thought was really beautiful, and, I, and it was the one act I didn't learn for the first uh, four months or so, or three and a half months, and, um, and also because it was kind of the act that I, I just didn't quite understand how it worked. I mean, I, I understood that you used your body as this conduit, but I didn't quite know, like, why it didn't why it didn't hurt or how it was. It just felt kind of magical to me. I mean, just very magical also to be making light, you know, off of your body. Uh, so I thought that was really, really incredible. And then it also, uh, I think became emblematic of my mom in a lot of ways, um, for a couple of reasons. One of which is, you know, for the first year after her strokes, she was really kept alive by all of these, machines and uh all of these electricity and so the the kind of um backdrop of her life for a long time was the sound of all of these machines that were plugged in so she was you know very literally an electric woman but then i think much more metaphorically she just was that she was that person to me in my life she was kind of larger than life she was really um magnetic and uh and she kind of had this ability to be, um, I don't know, it felt like she was always a little bit far away from me too. Like she, like I never quite could understand her, never quite uh, was very close to her. We actually had a really tough relationship. So I think the idea of electricity just kind of, it, you know, it came to mean both very literally what was happening in the show that I love to do, but also um, much more about trying to understand um, uh a dangerous and beautiful and complicated relationship with her and, and who she was and who she became after her stroke, too. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Tessa Fontaine, author of The Electric Woman, a memoir in death-defying acts. Tell us about some of these other death-defying acts and whether you, do you really feel like you were at risk at any point or was the training enough to help you feel safe? Yeah, so one of the really interesting points was that there is actually very little training, uh, which was a real <laughs> surprise to me. Um, when you are performing in this traditional sideshow, you're performing a grind show, which means that you're performing the same acts 
uh, all day, every day, act to act, back to back. So, so for example, the first day that I was a performer, I was out on the ballet stage, which means the small stage that's outside of the main tent, that's like in the main carnival walkway. So you, so you do a free show and allure people to buy tickets to come inside. And as a ballet performer out there, I was a fire eater and snake charmer, and I escaped from handcuffs, and I did the magic trick where I turned a $1 bill into a five. Um, and I, I had, so I had taken that fire eating class. Um, I had only met the snakes. We had two uh, giant red tail boa constrictors, um, and I had only met them the night before and found out, much to my horror, that I was actually totally terrified of them um, and was <laughs> going to need to wear them around my neck for about 12 hours a day the next morning. Um, and I actually, for the first about week of performing, I had to wear sunglasses all day on the stage to hide the tears that were kind of just streaming out of my eyes because I was so scared to be holding the snake. Wow. Um, but, but so, but so you do the acts so many times each day that um, that there isn't very much training because the the idea is by the end of one day of performing, you are going to know how to do them so well. You're going to have done them, you know, 40, 60 times or something. So the idea of like training ahead of time is pointless. But so those are the acts I did on the outside stage. Then when I became an inside performer, uh, I also became um, a four-legged woman and a headless woman. Um, and I, and I, they learned that I could also kind of talk on the microphone. So I became a talker for some of the inside acts. I talked to the contortionist act, which is where we would put, um, a bunch of blades into a box as our contortionist would move around them. Uh, I also talked a bed of nails act and, um, the, I did the electric woman act the electric chair act. And, and the, the real thing though, is that we each had to learn how to do every act in the show, uh, because there was always the possibility that someone would get hurt or have to leave for some reason. And, um, the show must go on. It was, it was a very literal trope that, uh, was just part, part of the world there. So like if the knife thrower, you know, had to step away, then someone else would have to step in. And in fact, the season before, I was out on the road with, with the show. Um, the knife thrower, you know, as occasionally happens, um, landed one of the knives in his partner's thigh as uh, she was standing on the board. And so she had to finish the act and then leave to go to the emergency room to get stitched up. And so 30 minutes later, when that act came around again, one of the other performers had to go stand on the board as he threw knives around her. Um, so it's, uh, wow. it takes a lot of, um, I don't know, courage or, uh, blind foolishness, maybe, maybe a little bit of both <laughs> to, um, to stay with the show. But, but you did what we did learn how to do every act. So I also can, although I'm really poor sword swallower, I did also learn how to swallow swords, um, and throw knives and do wild west whip act and all kinds of fun stuff. So you've told us why you joined, how what inspired you to. I mean, can you generalize about uh, uh, what drives people to join it? You know, who else did you meet there? I think there's, uh, I think there are a variety of reasons that people gravitate toward the sideshow. Um, the people who were 
performers there are doing it out of mostly out of a real commitment to keeping this piece of um, American culture alive. We did not get paid very much money. We did not, um, there was not glamour. I mean, we lived in the back of a semi-truck, like in the container of a semi-truck altogether. It's a really Mm. hard life. Uh, But the people who are part of the show believe in the tradition and believe in the community there. And, And one of the reasons I think the community is so strong is because it's a place where both historically and now um, it's a place where people who kind of could not uh, find acceptance in other communities or other parts of their life um, would find acceptance. So the sideshow and the carnival also on a larger um, scale, um, you know, allows for people who have criminal records and people who have substance abuse problems and mental health problems and people who kind of can't, can't really work a regular job for for whatever reason and people who um you know kind of have to be on the move and so uh and for example our our bosses the two the two old men that own the show um one of them grew up in nebraska and and you know knew from very early on that he was gay and and had been rejected from his community and his family and so ran away to the circus when he was 14 and never went back so in a really in a really basic way, it's kind of a community of outsiders banding together and and making their outsiderness um, not hiding it, not not kind of trying to become normal, but really kind of being like, yeah, we're a bunch of weirdos, and we are doing this weirdo amazing stuff, and <laughs> and we want to wow everyone with it. And and so I thought that that was really really wonderful. Um, we also had a performer named Red Stewart who has been performing for, gosh, maybe 40, 40 something years. And he holds like seven or eight Guinness World Records in various kinds of sword swallowing. Like he has a record for swallowing like 35 swords at once or something. Like wow. That's kind of Jeez. unimaginable. Yeah. And he would also swallow a, a tire, a car axle um, during the show, like a really thick piece of metal and um and so he is kind of one of those legends who you know anyone in the sideshow or circus world knows of him and so it was pretty amazing to get to know him over the course of the season and um he refused to look me in the eye or learn my name for the first basically three months because he had seen so many people come and go over the years that he was only willing to kind of acknowledge you if you once you had until you like uh, once you had proved that you could hack it out there. So once he knew that you were a hard worker and you were going to stick with it, um, and so I worked really, really hard to try to get his eye contact really to begin with, um, and then ultimately approval. And um, he became a person that I that I loved really quite a lot out there. How, how did you finally get? his attention and to get him to, to teach you. Yeah. Um, I think that he saw that I was, I would work, I worked really hard. I mean, everyone out there worked really hard, but, um, I think he saw that I wasn't, I wasn't just there kind of flippantly for, you know, a few weeks and then was going to abandon the show or something. I I worked really hard. And I think really this, the event that finally made him pay attention to me was, um, we were about halfway through the season and uh, we were at one of the big state fairs um, at the, I think it was the Wisconsin state fair. Um, And it was the first time that we had to set up on um, asphalt instead of on dirt and grass. And so we, we 
you know, hammer all of these huge tent, tent poles, which are about two feet long and kind of as wide around as maybe a, a or wider than a broom broomstick, um, hammered them into the ground. And then when it was time to take the circus tent up and to move on to the next fair, we realized that we could not get these um, tent stakes out of the ground. We just, everything that we tried wouldn't get them to come up. So we had to hire a forklift the next morning and use this, you know, the edge of the forklift to try to, to just desperately try to get a corner of it under the, the head of the tent stake, which was pretty much flush with the ground. Um, and, and it was taking so much power that the forklift, the fork of it was actually bowing. Like it was causing the fork wow. of the forklift to bow. Uh, and the rest of us were kind of standing around finishing the last pieces of, of clean up and packing to go to the next show. And there were all these men standing around watching it. And suddenly there was just this collective gasp. And I looked over and everyone's heads were looking to the sky. Um, and <laughs> I was really disoriented and I kind of, you know, started looking up there. And, and as I did, I realized that all the heads that were looking up then were looking, were, were suddenly all looking over at me. Um, and the tent stake that had flown about 40 feet into the air, this huge piece of metal landed. It, it, it scraped the tip of my nose oh, um, oh my God. and scraped my chest and landed on my hands were in front of me. I was tying a rope and it landed on my hand, which was, you know, maybe six inches from my heart, basically. Um and I got pretty hurt. My, my hand got pretty hurt, not broken. I don't think, but, um, but you know, pretty badly hurt. It was a really, really close call to actually being, wow. you know, impaled and, and probably killed. But I think that was the moment that that red was like, all right, I, you know, I'll pay attention to her. She, <laughs> she almost got impaled and she's, you know, back to work right away and, and sticking with the show. And, um, so I think it was kind of a point of, uh, of like, I had passed some toughness test or something, not by my choice. I would have, I wouldn't have chosen to do that, but, wow. um, and then we became, yeah, we became friends. Uh, I mean, you know, loosely friends, I guess I should say, but, uh, we would, um, I, I had a driver's license and so, which not all the performers did. And so I would drive, run errands sometimes and he would come with me. So I asked him a lot of questions about his life, how he, got into performing and he had been raised among all these different orphanages and, and just kind of told all of these really elaborate tales. Um, many of which I never really knew, you know, which ones were true or not true, but like much that happened at the sideshow, um, the good story was much more important than the truthiness of the event. So, uh, which was also true in, in the way that we spun the tales of many of the things that you were seeing inside the tent. Um, but he's a person that, uh, you know, remained really gruff and remained um, like just doesn't have time for anyone's uh, crap. But um, also, uh, also, you know, once once he kind of sees that you're a person who values keeping this tradition alive, um, was a real a real supporter. And, and then eventually we would be just talking about books and talking about um, philosophy. So, yeah, really fascinating guy. When you joined the sideshow, did you know that you were going to write about it, or did that happen after? I had I had an idea. I hoped that I would be able to write about it. Uh, when I first went down to to Gibsonton to um, kind of 
poke around this town. I was doing it because I was writing a, a, a short article, a short essay basically on, um, I wanted to write a short essay on, on the town and on one of the, the, the bosses of the sideshow, one of the owners. Um, and then as I started meeting the other performers down there and, and seeing what that world was like and, and understanding that it was the very last one, this is the only sideshow that we, the only traveling sideshow we have left in America. Um, I started feeling like the story was a lot bigger than, you know, just the story of one of these performers. So I hoped that there would be, um, that there would be more that I could write about. And so while I was out on the road, I took really obsessive notes. Um, I, I have just, you know, hundreds of pages of notes, um, and on my computer and on my phone. And, and I just tried to document as much of, of what was happening and what people were saying and, you know, the strange moments we had, I just tried to take it all down. Um, and so I, you know, I have enough notes to probably have turned this book into a, a 10 volume work, um, which probably luckily for, for people reading it did not happen, but, um, there, there was just so many amazingly strange moments and so many amazingly strange parts of, of what it's like to, you know, live locked inside the carnival fairgrounds for five months with hundreds of carnies. Like just the actual details of that life are, um, pretty extraordinary and, um, and, and I thought, you know, pretty fascinating. We've been talking with Tessa Fontaine, and you can find her book, The Electric Woman, in stores right now. Tessa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. It's been great to talk to you. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot looks ahead to Book Expo. Stay tuned. Hello. This is Elaine Weiss. I'm the author of The Woman's Hour, The Great Fight to Win the Vote. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here again, and this time to tell us all about the upcoming book, Expo, No America. Hello, Jim. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Mark. Very good, Mark. (laughs) It's uh, it's taking all of us a little time to get used to it being Book Expo, not Book Expo America, but it still holds the same place in our hearts. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, that, well, that's good to know. Tell, tell us, tell us a little bit about what to expect from this year's book expo. Uh, book expo plus book con. Don't forget, that's it's right. a one-two punch. Mm-hmm. Initiated a number of changes again, for better or worse. They're always evolving the show, and they do try to pay attention to the the publishers and others exhibitors um, to uh, to meet the demands that they want. And last year, one of the starkest changes was. As veterans know, the book expo floor, exhibit floor, had always been open for three days. Well, last year they cut it to two with the hope that, you know, that Mm -hmm. might, uh, for one thing, uh, cut down on some costs because uh, one of the biggest complaints for attending book expo is the cost. I mean, especially people from outside New York City, as we all know, uh, hotels are not cheap in the Big Apple. So they, they so they tried right. to do that, but what happened was uh, a lot of the uh, exhibitors who were not going to stick around for a book con didn't think two days was really worth it. So what they're doing for 2018 is publishers who want the three-day uh, book expo only option uh, can take that, 
and then um, publishers who want to do both BookCon and Book Expo, which will mean four days, two days for both events, uh, can do that. And there's also a BookCon only uh, option, which I understand about 40 uh, publishers and others uh, took advantage of. So it's a little bit of the a la carte method. Yeah, right. Exactly right. And um, anybody who's been to the BookCon knows what it's geared towards. It's really, well, pretty, a lot geared almost entirely to fiction, although they're trying to change out a little bit this year and add a little bit more nonfiction. And it's always been uh, young adultish and and uh, you know twenty somethings, but again, they're they're trying to change that a little bit this year. But you could tell publishers who didn't have anything for those for those areas weren't going to stick around for BookCon. So I mean, I, when I was there last year on the, the Saturday, the first day of BookCon, you know, there were whole parts of uh, the hall that were more or less empty. <laughs> so um, it made sense to, and I could see if you were only there for two days, you really might not feel like you're getting your money's worth. Mm. So what are the expected attendance for each? We haven't gone into great detail about that. They're expecting for over 20,000 for Book Expo, maybe probably 20 to 25. Last year for BookCon, they had about 18,000. Uh, they're hoping for growth in that, but as the executives there say, you know, pre-registration is up. But, you know, BookCon is a pretty classic walk, walk-up show. Right. So I really won't know, you know, almost until the day of the event. But there's a few other things they've done on the Book Expo front. They're calling it a, a reimagined Book Expo. And one of the things they're doing is trying to uh, increase bookstore or bookseller uh, interaction with authors themselves and um, as well as uh, editors. So one thing they've created is this thing they're calling Editor's Hours, which is a program uh, for each day of the show, uh, publishers have the option of having certain editors being at their booths during certain times. And then uh, booksellers don't even need uh, appointments, can just walk up and, you know, go to uh, go to that editor and talk about the books that, that, that they want to highlight. And as of last week when we were talking to the Book Expo folks, they had uh, 40 publishers uh, had signed up for about 100 editors. So uh, that sounds like it's off to a good start. And they also have increased the number of stages. I think we've all seen the stages on the exhibit floor. Last year there was two. These are the author stages. Uh, and uh, in 2018 there's going to be four. And as uh, Book Expo exec said to me, you know, more stages, more authors. So again, uh, the attempt to bring in more authors and give booksellers and other book buyers, librarians and the like, um, an opportunity to to talk to the authors, you know, and get a sense of the books, maybe talk about uh, uh, maybe paying a visit, uh, you never know, mm. and just to get the whole, uh, the whole dialogue between the booksellers and the authors and editors going. So uh, speaking of dialogue, uh, what about keynote speaker? Oh, uh, Mark, yes. They're having a keynote speaker this year for the, really the first time, and it's Len Riggio. The uh, founder and chairman of Barnes and Noble. Uh, as we all know, Barnes and Noble is the largest uh, books and mortar bookstore chain. We've talked about it quite a bit on this show. Um, there was uh, 
New York Times uh, op-ed piece earlier this week talking about he hopes Barnes and Noble survives, mm-hmm. as does everybody else in publishing. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know they're not that they're on death's door, but you know they are uh, up against Amazon and uh, all the other changes that are going on in physical retail. So um, we're pretty sure, and uh, read folks are confident that the booksellers, as well as the publishers, uh, like to hear what uh, Ridgeo has to say. And in, to show you. Uh, how things have changed, especially for people who've been in the industry for a long time. Um, <laughs> Oren Tyker, who's the CEO of the American Booksellers Association, is introducing a wow. review. Wow. And, and, and <laughs> that is probably the most noteworthy thing, and I'm glad you reacted like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah that <laughs> is a... <laughs> wow. It's, it's not a big that deal. long ago. Yeah, <laughs> the ABA sued Barnes & Right. Yeah. Um, everybody now is lined up against... Um, Online retailers, so it's, you know, bricks and mortar versus, versus the online on folks. So, and, you know, Tiger was quoted as saying, you know, I think it was in the Times piece that, you know, the independents need Barnes and Noble to survive. Yeah, I saw that quote. Need, I was astonished. Right. You, you need, you need a healthy, uh, bricks and mortar sec- segment for, um, for, for the industry and its whole to be, to, to be, uh, Prosperous. Right. I think we may have mentioned it before. Uh, you know, a publisher's dream is you know, Amazon, eBooks, and a healthy uh, physical bricks and mortar channel. Yep. So uh, we'll see what we can do about that. And something else that hasn't really happened since uh, another lawsuit when the federal government sued Apple and the uh, the publishers over eBook discounts. Uh, there's going to be a CEO panel at uh, Book Expo this year. And um, Marcus Dolly, who heads up Penguin Random House, uh, John Sargent from McMillan, and Carolyn Reedy from SNS are all going to be on the panel, and they're going to talk about some of the important issues uh, facing the industry in a whole. So I think that's just an example of the, sort of the firepower that uh, Reed is trying to bring to the show. No, certainly everybody we've talked about now are are big names in, in the industry. So you know it, it stands to reason that people would might want to hear what these people have to have to say. Going back a moment to the uh, editor office hours, is there any thought of doing that during BookCon too? Because I know a lot of readers who would be really interested in getting to talk to editors, especially those who are thinking of you know, writing their own books and either self-publishing them or uh, going the traditional publishing route. Um, I hear what you're saying, Rose. They don't have anything planned, but they do have... And I have to admit, I don't know all the details on this. They are sure. offering like a uh, sort of a new to writing seminar uh, that you can take for no extra charge. I don't know. They haven't promoted it too much, um, but there will be sort of a self-publishing one-on-one aspect to it where uh, there'll be people on hand to try to shepherd you or at least get you started on the road to, to doing your own books. Um, BookCon will have uh, an addition. Some of the changes are alluded to. They're opening it up more to nonfiction, but they're also trying to add some more adult um, genres like mystery thriller, sci-fi, romance, um, and again, maybe uh, some bringing some more nonfiction authors. Um, but talking about big draws, um, 
most people in publishing know, uh, Bill Clinton has teamed up with James Patterson mm -hmm. to co-write a book called The President is Missing. And they will be at BookCon on Sunday, making a joint appearance to, to kick off that book, which publishes uh, this, this spring. I know we have a review coming out day 15th, so everybody right. should look for that. We'll definitely keep an eye out for that. Well, thank you, Jim. This sounds very exciting, getting our appetites whetted for uh, for the Book Expo and BookCon. And uh, I'm sure we'll see you there. Uh, you will see me there. <laughs> thanks for the time. All right. Thanks, Jim. It's always great to have you on the show. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another exciting author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes, and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 